Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. And blessings. And welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, welcome to the Gist of Freedom. You're listening online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at Black University. Actually, that's blackhistoryuniversity.com. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz, and today we have the distinct honor to speak with our dear guest, William L. Katz, but right now we have Ike on the line. Ike, are you there? Okay. How about Leslie? Leslie, are you there? Okay, so who's there? <laughs> I am, William Katz. Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you. I am absolutely honored to be able to um, talk to you this evening. I know that you were a friend of my mother's. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Tell me, tell me how you knew my mother. Well, <laughs> Dr. I, Betty Shabbat, for those who don't know. Yes, Dr. Betty Shabbat. <clears throat> what I did <clears throat> was in 1995, <clears throat> I brought out a book called Black Women of the Old West. And your mother was then radio host on WLIB of her own radio program. <clears throat> and she invited me to come in and and be interviewed by her. And it was a, we had a wonderful time. It was a very interesting uh, interview. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget one of the things she said toward the end of the interview, which has warmed, warmed my heart, was... <laughs> This is one of the most interesting books I've ever read. Mm. Well, I was blown away when I heard that you, her daughter, were going to interview me tonight. I am the oh. one who is honored. Oh, oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much. Well, for our audience, um, William L. Katz is the author of Black Indian. And, sir, I... You know, if you will, can you tell us why Native American Month history is so important? Sure. I, I just wanted to add one one note to, to what I just said about your mother. Uh, lo and behold, a few weeks after she interviewed me, she called me again and asked me to come in again so she could interview me a second time on that same book. Oh, <laughs> you mean on the so book that we're... That we're talking about today? 
No, no, black Indians hadn't, uh, you know, black Indians, it wasn't black Indians, it was black women of the Old West. Oh, that's she right. Lo- she okay. loved some of the characters there. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, it, it was more than nice. It was wonderful. Well, anyway, I'm going to have to find that book. <laughs> I'll, I'll be happy to get you one. It's really such an honor to be interviewed by you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So do you want to tell us why is Native American Month so important? Well, Native American History Month, which mm-hmm. is November, is, is important because it has been ignored. And mm-hmm. Native Americans were the first peoples here. And they were here in the millions. When mm-hmm. Columbus stepped off his ship, uh, people give Columbus credit for discovering something, but actually it was Native Americans that discovered him on mm-hmm. one of their beaches there in the Bahamas. And what he did was he stepped on a continent that had tens of millions of people mm. grouped in 60, 600 societies and speaking 500 distinct languages. Wow. Well, I don't know how you claim that you discovered something that that's crowded. <laughs> right. Like walking right. into a, a subway car and claiming you discovered it. Right. <laughs> well, um, you know, we, we seem to be taught in, in elementary school, and then it's reiterated in high school that Christopher Columbus discovered America. So I yes. think it is important for us to have these books, you know, that are more uh, factual about our history. No, it, it's, it's really important because ch- children grow up with the wrong impression. White right. children, black children, Native American children. Right. And uh, let me just continue to, to answer your first question. Uh, Native Americans were so important that when the Europeans landed and they established settlements and they started, you know, to push inland to try to learn how to survive, not a single foreign settlement in the Americas could have lasted without Native American aid. Mm -hmm. Indigenous people taught Europeans how to clear forests, plant and harvest crops, and how to survive in the new environment. And the newcomers learned how to use fish heads as fertilizers, build traps that snared game, and construct birch bark canoes for travel and fishing. Mm. Native Americans instructed them about what animals offered the best food or skins for clothing and shelter, and warned them about dangerous animals and poisons. So here was a host that took these newcomers, these foreigners, uh, at their word that they were just coming to look, see, and enjoy. (laughs) And, of course, what happened was a holocaust. It was a holocaust that has never been duplicated in that tens of millions of people began to lose their lives uh, within 100 years of Columbus's landing. And this is after Native Americans introduced to the Europeans and the world 20 major and 40 minor agricultural crops, corn and potatoes, tomatoes, pumpkins, pineapples, sweet potatoes, squash, beans, maple syrup, and a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. And the cotton now grown throughout the world is derived from a Native American species. This is an enormous contribution, and it certainly you know, deserves a, a month of attention. Oh, in the least. 
you know, we keep talking about the importance of history and um, understanding that all ethnic groups make up today what we know as America. And, you know, I personally believe, and I'm sure many others, that every child deserves an opportunity to feel good about themselves. They, feel, they, they deserve an opportunity to experience self-love. And I think if we give credit to all ethnic groups for their uh, different contributions, that there's enough love in there for everyone, especially, well, I'm going to stay focused on the Native Americans um, right now in this uh, discussion. So uh, go ahead. Um, what role, um, well, first, let me go back to the indigenous, these indigenous Native Americans, yes. uh, the first people who were here. What would you say they contributed to world knowledge? Well, besides the specific survival skills that they taught and and uh, crops they introduced the Europeans learned how to make and use snow canoes snowshoes moccasins dog sleds hammocks and smoking pipes uh, the rubber balls central to most of today's athletic contests were introduced to the Europeans by Native Americans and the and they were shown also the Europeans new ways of creating crafts jewelry and preserving leather but mm-hmm. beyond that, uh, they they really learned a lot more, or they could have learned even more if they had been respectful of the Native right. Americans that they met. Because mm-hmm. Native Americans had really new ideas, certainly new to Europeans, of tolerance and democracy. Native American societies were set up for discussions Women played a very crucial role in most Native American societies. And matter of fact, many of them were matrilineal, which meant the prestige part of the family when uh, people married was the female part, the bride's mm-hmm. part of the family. But, in a, but some European philosophers did study Europe, Indian concepts of freedom and self-discipline and the whole idea of commitment to community that you grew up in the world, you weren't just an individual. You had a role to play within your own family, and you had a role to play within your community. And the other thing they had was the acceptance and adoption of helpful foreigners and tolerance of differences. This is something the Europeans sorely lacked. A few of them learned it, but not many. Right, and I I think that was, um, you know, it sounds like, the Native Americans, you know, introduced um, a great culture and a great way of, uh, of living uh, to the European settlers. Um, but it also reminds me that back on the continent, you know, there were these, there was this thriving uh, civilizations with learned, industrious African people um, who. You know, I don't want to take away from Native Americans, but, you know, the largest forced migration of the people in the history of mankind. What role would you say the, um, the, the Native Americans play with the Africans? Yes. Well, that, what, what you asked is a crucial question. <clears throat> because uh, if I may, may start this way, the first people enslaved here in the Americas were people of Native American descent because they were the first people that the Europeans encountered. Then, and they, many of them, as I told you, uh, d- died. Tens of millions died during this process. 
-hmm. And the result was the Europeans needed another source of labor. So they went to Africa and they seized people, men, women and children coming from many rich cultures Mm -hmm. from all over Africa. And they were brought here. Now, one of the most interesting things I stumbled on when I was doing research for my book, Black Indians, was the fact that in 1526, that's long before Jamestown or Plymouth Rock or the other colonies that uh, you and I and others studied about in public schools, the Spanish brought 100 Africans to a little place on the Petty River uh, in South Carolina, called, and they called it San Miguel de Gualdape. And these Africans did not want to be enslaved. Uh, the Native Americans did not take to the Spaniards because they were, uh, saw them mistreating the Africans, and they remembered how they had been enslaved. And so what happened was the San Miguel was ignored by the Native Americans, Uh, The people began to starve. They didn't know how to take care of themselves. And the Africans fled to the Native Americans, and the Native Americans took them in. Mm. Now, what happened then was the Spaniards, having nobody to rely on, picked up and went back to Spain, those who had survived. And they went back to Spain. But the first colony here in our United States was not a colony then, a lasting colony of Europeans. It was a colony of, yes, there were newcomers, the Africans, and there were the Native Americans, the first peoples. And they made together a peaceful, harmonious colony there in the, along the streams there in South Carolina. That's not a story you'll find in our history books. Right, because right. they talk about Jamestown, or they talk you know, about Plymouth Rock and so on. Right. Well, you know, again, I I think it's our responsibility to ensure that these um, stories and and, and these facts in our history um, are preserved and documented. So I I absolutely salute you. You're listening to William L. Katz. He's the author of Black Indians, and you can find more about him and his amazing books, at uh, www.williamlkatz.com. So I have a list here, Mr. Katz, that I've, sure. uh, com- I've compiled from our listeners, and they'd like to know what role did these Native Americans and these locations in our country play in history. You talked about the Pity, the Pity River community. Yes. What about the Maroon colonies? Okay, there's another vitally important thing. You and I, kids who went through the public schools, whether it was here in New York or anywhere in the country, mm-hmm. we learned about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and all men are created equal, and the fight against British colonialism. Mm-hmm. Well, the fight against colonialism began way back Soon after Columbus, it was led by Native Americans and it was led by Africans and often together. And together what they did, they formed maroon colonies. Now, maroon colonies means that these were colonies separate from the European settlements. Uh, People who fled 
from the Europeans because they were either enslaved or persecuted in some way, and they set up their own settlements out in the wilderness, they hoped, out of the reach of the European armies and, and uh, officials. Uh, they had to, of necessity, be armed because they were often under attack, these maroon colonies, and they had to fight. And they, they fought so well that uh, they, one group in, uh, was called the Republic of Palmares. It was in northeastern Brazil. It was about 10,000 wow. people, and it was in the 1600s. Now, I think New York City in the 1600s may have had one, two, three thousand people. And here's a colony of Africans and Native Americans, with, and they had an elected king, Genga Zumba, whose name combined an African word uh, for king and a Tupi Indian word for r ruler. And they fought off the Portuguese and the Dutch mm -hmm. for almost a hundred years. Wow. So the, our first free, what I'm getting at is our first freedom fighters were not the Thomas Jeffersons <laughs> and George Washingtons and others who had slaves, but a right. group of people who had once tasted slavery and said, mm -hmm. we want to be free. This is what America means to us. Right. Right. Wow. Again... You're listening to William L. Katz. He's the author of Black Indians, and we're talking to him today for Native American History Month. You can find more about William L. Katz and his books at williamlkatz.com. That's W-I-L-L-I-A-M. L as in Larry, K-A, T as in Tom, Z as in zebra.com. This is fascinating. I'm, I'm really enjoying our conversation. What about, what about my father, Malcolm X? <laughs> he, I, I admired him immensely. I never got to meet him, mm -hmm. but I, I admired him immensely. And mm -hmm. one of the things he said I'd like to repeat, uh, when he was asked one time during an interview, he said, history is the most important social science to study history teaches us and i just a few moments ago heard you say that basically in in your own words and what he was getting at is that you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been you don't know what you can be if you don't know what you have been and black children and native american yeah. children have to learn that as assuredly as white children are taught it every day in our schools Right, right. You know, I often tell um, young people, I'm, I also lecture, um, and I also, I mean, I often compare the parallel, and my father spoke of this, the parallel oppression of the Holocaust of Jewish mm -hmm. people. And, you know, the difference is that Jewish people teach their children um, to be proud of their heritage, to be proud of um, their experience, um, they know the significant contribution that they make to world history, and they teach their children and vow never to repeat it again. And so Jewish, young Jewish children learn to be proud of their heritage. You know, they learn what it is to be Jewish. And, right. and, and you know, the difference is, unfortunately, we don't know um, a lot about Africa. Thank God we have this Internet 
um, and, and so many other things. So, yes, I think it's extremely important that we do understand the importance of our identity, you know, and all of these great things. Now, a lot of my friends or a lot of people that I know wear a lot of fur. What can you tell me about the fur? And, and you know, I'm not going to... I'm not going to lie, I do have something hanging around in my closet, you know, because I just do not like the cold at all, and it's terrible, you know, for whatever reason. But what can you tell me about the fur trade? Well, you know, when I, when I was a kid uh, living on 13th Street in Manhattan, we kids uh, go up on Saturday to the RKO 23rd Street, and they always had a special program in the early afternoon for children with free movies, and it cost... 11 cents to get in. This was in the middle of the Great Depression, and they even gave you Hershey bar for going in. Well, one of those movies was always a cowboy movie. And I, I first want to say there was never a, a character of African descent, and that people of Native American descent were portrayed as enemies, as people who wouldn't give up their land when they should have to the Europeans, which is, of course, a big joke. Right. Now, well, when, whenever they showed the fur trade, which was Native Americans trading with the Europeans, and there was a very vigorous fur trade, they always showed that the uh, Europeans had names like McTavish or Chorumbano. In other words, they were always Irish or Scotch-Irish or French. But we now know that an enormous number of the fur trappers were African-American. And one of them I'd like to talk about in particular is a fellow named Jim Beckworth. Jim Beckworth uh, was a, an apprentice to a white man, and he, when the man interfered with his right to see his girlfriend, he slugged him and headed out uh, out for the frontier. And okay. he lived. What? <laughs> I said, well, okay. That's right. Freedom is freedom. And Absolutely. he got out there, and he discovered a pass through the Sierra Nevada mountains that leads into California. This was in 1850. Mm -hmm. Well, we all know that what happened around that time was the gold rush. Mm -hmm. And Beckworth Pass, it's still there. It's still there on the map of California in northeastern California. It was an important path to a lot of the immigrants coming through there. Uh, Beckworth went on to become a chief of the Crow Nation. He went on to fight in a couple of wars and be a very sought-after sought scout for the U.S. Mm -hmm. Army. And he's just one example of black people who are important in the fur trade. The Bonga Brothers up in Minnesota intermarried mm -hmm. with Native Americans and took part in the fur trade. Mm -hmm. So this is an unknown part. It never got into Hollywood movies, and it never even got into right. our history books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, callers, I see you. Callers, I do see you. We will open the lines in, uh, let's say, about seven more minutes at 8.30, so stay on the line, keep calling. Um, we are here. We're online listening to William L. Katz. He's the author of Black Indians among so many other great books, and you can find him on his website at williamlcats.com. Um, wow, that's really something. So what about the Seminole Nation? What can you tell me about them? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked about it, because the Seminole Nation in Florida 
is made up of, of two major elements. The Seminoles were a break-off segment of the Creek Nation, the Creek mm-hmm. Native American Nation. And they were chafing under what they considered kind of ethnic discrimination. So they headed south uh, from Georgia into Florida, which was then acclaimed by Spain. But who was in there to greet them but people of African descent who had been escaping slavery in the south and heading into Florida because it was so loosely governed by Spain. The Africans took in the Seminoles and taught the methods of rice cultivation that wow. they had learned when they were back in Senegambia and Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. And on this basis, these two people of color formed mm-hmm. what you might call it the first rainbow coalition. They mm-hmm. form, formed the largest station of the Underground Railroad we ever heard of, and mm-hmm. they helped launch the longest lasting, what we'd have to call, slave rebellion in U.S. history. Because for 42 years, the United States fought to suppress, once it took over Florida, fought to suppress this black Seminole alliance. And wow. uh, it, it was led by such people as Wildcat or Coacache and mm-hmm. his uh, sub-chief, John Horse or John Kawaya, who was of African descent. And these men conducted military operations By the way, I I just want to say this, that as they fought the U.S. Army, which was the largest and strongest army on the continent, they had to move their own families out of harm's way. And and they also then negotiated. They often Mm -hmm. negotiated peace treaties, but the U.S. uh, didn't uh, follow them. But these were heroic figures, and they eventually end up in the 1850s when they've been resettled in Oklahoma, they, and, and the Civil War has uh, spurred the Southerners. Uh, it's coming on, and the Southerners are trying to steal the children, steal the women, and re-enslave them. They pick up on the Wildcat and John Horse. They travel from Oklahoma through Texas, cross the Rio Grande with white posses hot on their trail, and cross into Mexico, where they lived for the next 20 years. They're actually hired by uh, the Mexican government to patrol the border. These are by then very, very tough frontier fighters. So, Mm -hmm. So when you ask about Seminoles, you're asking, first of all, about the largest coming together of people of African and Native American descent, and that should be celebrated on Native American History Month. Because here are freedom fighters putting it on the line. And they go on decade after decade. Right. You know, and the thing is, is that, you know, I don't know that uh, we have to make sure that our young people understand the social climate, you know, the psychological trauma that these people, the indigenous people of this country, the Native Americans, the African people who were enslaved, you know, that they understand um, the social climate that, you know, these people were living under and the importance of compassion, the importance of brotherhood, that when you understand all of this history, you understand the shoulders upon those we all stand today. And, and so we have to understand and learn this 
history so that we can give honor and praise to all of those uh, who deserve it. Um, again, we're listening to William L. Katz. He's the author of Black Indian. I'm not sure if we should open up the lines now. Uh, let's see, Leslie said at 8.30, and we have three more minutes. Let's see if there's another, um, if there's another let's see, um, topic that we can go into. Maybe we don't have time. Let's open up the line. Sure. Caller, a caller, who's out there? Hello? Caller, what's your name? Hello, caller, are you out there? Leslie? Okay, I think they're too shy. <laughs> let's see, let's move on. Is there another caller who wants to ask a question? You know, we had all of these, call- we had all of these uh, different topics that they wanted to know about you. They want to know about Francisco Menendez and Fort Mose. Now, I don't even know who they are. <laughs> well, Francisco Menendez was a, a man of African descent who, uh, during this early period, uh, in Florida, oh, okay. he organized a community there at Fort Mose. He he went to the Spaniards and he said, "I can I can fight off the British enemy to the north if you mm-hmm. let me set up my own colony, free colony at Fort Mose. Fort Mose is about two miles north of Saint Augustine, and he set it up with about a hundred. Uh, African and Native American people. It was some intermarriage by that time, and they were there to hold off the British. But they also had a, played a symbolic value because this was the first officially recognized African community in the New World, or in the United mm-hmm. States at least. Okay. It was officially recognized by Spain, and it, as, as a lot of the other Maroon colonies, it was military in nature, although, of course, they had their own food, which they grew. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Well, let's see. I have um, Wade. He just sent in a question. He wants to know about the Saponi Indians in North Carolina and Virginia. He says that we are part of the Okanichi tribe. We are state-recognized, not federally recognized. Okay. Can you say anything about that? I, I, I can't comment on the specific, and, and by the way, I, I don't use the word tribe. Okay. I use the word nation based on the fact if Europeans came from nations, right. so yeah. did Native American. Just for example, there's a whole thing I go into in Black Indians about mm-hmm. the words used. They yeah. used the name, for example, for Native Americans, they used villages. And mm-hmm. for Europeans, they used towns. Well, mm-hmm. one has, has class and the other doesn't have quite that class. That's, exactly. why, that's why I pointed out because yeah. you've repeatedly referred to the educational value of this information. And right. sometimes we have to clarify the words that are used. I, right. I can say this to the caller, that in, in Virginia and in, in North Carolina in particular, there was a very strong mixture of the five, what we call the five civilized nations, and people of African descent. And I even believe the famous, or I should say the infamous, Trail of Tears that forced forced these five nations at Bayonet Point, the United Mm -hmm. States forced them on the Trail of Tears to pick up and leave the Carolinas and Virginia and so on and go out all the way out to Oklahoma. One of the reasons was the fear of slave rebellions 
if the Native Americans out there in these states kept taking in Africans and Africans found, as they did, that Native American towns and villages were a, uh, a refuge and a place that would take them in and actually provide them uh, a military base. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. You are talking about these names, what's in the name, feeling, you know, a lot of people think that they're minorities and, and you know, being called a minority when you're not. And then right. say you have Europeans or white people who, who are in Africa and they never refer to themselves as minorities. Um, they refer to themselves you know, that's other great words. Um, what about the controversy surrounding an NFL team, the Redskins? What's in a name, and why do some of the why do some people find these names so offensive? Can you say anything about that before we? Sure, and no, I'd, I'd be I'd be happy to. I I just want to point out, twenty years ago, yeah. uh, the column, famous columnist for USA Today, Reverend Barbara Reynolds, wrote a column uh, criticizing that name. Uh, Washington Redskins. She said it was offensive, and you know you wouldn't call, uh, uh, so you wouldn't name them some other disparaging name. That you know, and these names are around whether they're used for Jews or for black people or for Italians or whatever, and that that name is disparaging and should be changed. She even uh, recommended in a column she wrote. Uh, back in 1993, that the black athletes who play on those teams, really in the black community, should take the lead in pointing that out. That that's that's not the way you mm-hmm. refer to people. People right. are not are not given mascot names, and they're not given. You don't cheapen uh, the name of a people by reducing them to that that kind of language. Mhm, mhm, mhm. Okay, we have another um, question here. They want to know. What is your opinion of the Poor People's March of 1968? Oh, very. That's I like that question because, <laughs> first of all, it brings us up to more modern times. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the march that was organized by Dr. King and Cesar Chavez of Hispanic and Native American descent, and Dr. King and Cesar Chavez and the others made sure there were Native Americans in it. Poor mm-hmm. white people were in it, and of course, people of African descent were in it. And uh, th- this was very imp- important. This was all coming together on on the streets of Washington at the time that Dr. King was assassinated that April in 1968. Mm-hmm. But what Dr. King was moving toward, and Cesar Chavez and other leaders, and by the way, that was the year the American Indian movement got underway, which was taking its cues from people like your father, Malcolm X, and people like Dr. King, and saying, we've got to stand up and fight. Uh, The the Native American movement, the American Indian movement, by the way, was more influenced even by uh, Malcolm X and those who preached his doctrine of not integrating necessarily into the white society but getting back what was theirs and, 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 maybe, and establishing their own hegemonic organizations, economic and political. And can, you expand, can you expand on that? Because I think a lot of people, when they hear something about Malcolm X saying uh, not to integrate, I, could you just expand on that a little bit, please? Yeah, well, first of all, I think we have to understand, if you, if you read 
Malcolm's words and 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 what he did. He he was evolving. He was not against the civil rights movement. There are even mm-hmm. photographs that show him with Dr. King, and he was supportive, and they exchanged correspondence and so on. What right. Malcolm X represented was what uh, Stokely Carmichael began with this black power, and that black people, whether they were in the ghettos in the north or kind of imprisoned under the Jim Crow system in the south, had to organize themselves and put their own candidates up for office and make demands and resist because they stood to be the force that could bring democracy to America and at the same time liberate their own people from the mental and physical shackles that white uh, white, uh, society had imposed on them over over the centuries. Because it seems like most people forget about those shackles. You know, they just think that these um, that that these uh, people just came out of nowhere and they say that they were hate mongers and all these things, but they forget about the social climate that existed that these people were reacting to. That these people had compassion, you know, for those who were being oppressed and repressed and and everything else. So I, I think it's you know if you can just Really, tell us about yeah. the yeah. Go ahead. Well, well, let's take one example. So, as you pointed out, uh, the, these people who spoke up like that were demonized, and one of the groups, groups, for example, was the Black Panthers. They they were violent. They had to be the government had to send in the FBI, undermine them, shoot them down. The Black Panthers ran a breakfast program for young children because they simply realized that young children, didn't matter black or white, young children needed their breakfast if they were to really pay attention in school and do better in their studies. See, that kind of thing has been neglected. Right. And and, and Malcolm X's message was not of violence, far from, it was of unity. It was self-defense, but it was first we unite. You know, we try to get what we need by the ballot box. But we have to be prepared to defend us. Well, everybody has a right of self-defense. Mm-hmm. Individuals do. Right. Right. Well, I'm just enjoying our conversation. I think we've already extended. We went over eight minutes. <laughs> but <laughs> well, this, is, this is the beauty of having uh, uh, Leslie Gist and the Gist of Freedom you're uh, right. talk radio. Um, I want to make sure that we mention the American Indian Movement. Since yes. This is Native... American History Month. Yeah, the, the, the American Indian Movement, as I said, grew out of the Civil Rights Movement, but particularly the black power uh, component of it. And they were very influenced by Stokely Carmichael and, and Malcolm X. And Dennis Banks and Native American was part of it. Let me mention another figure we shouldn't forget. Dick Gregory, the black comedian, early on, he knew enough of his history to reach out in Olympia, Washington, and fight for Native American fishing rights. He went to jail for that. So what I'm pointing out is that long after this early period you and I have discussed, Native Americans and African Americans were reaching out to each other and Mm -hmm. helping each other fight the good fight to get justice, you know, in the United States, long denied. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that brings to mind Leonard Peltier and Mumia Abu-Jamal. Yes. Do you want to make a comment on that before we 
close the line? Yeah, I'll just make a, a fast a, a personal comment. I was okay. being interviewed on a radio station uh, um, a number of years ago. And after I got off, the station had picked up both Mumia Abu-Jamal and, um, and uh, what, what was, I just lost that. Uh, uh, Leonard Peltier yeah, Leonard and Peltier. Mumia Abu-Jamal. Right. And each of them spoke from prison. And what did these men do? They referred not to themselves, wow. but to the fight to help the other one as a political prisoner get out of jail as, because mm-hmm. they were both unjustly tried and convicted in jail. And this is the kind of unity that can be established, and this is the kind of unity that I think my book Black Indian speaks to as something mm-hmm. having deep historical roots. Yes. Well, why is it so hard to get federally recognized by the federal government? You know, for example, the Lumbee Indians have been trying to get federal recognition for years. Why is it important to become federally recognized? Well, first of all, you have to understand that enormous damage was done to Native Americans. That's why the whole issue even came up, that Native Americans need help. Uh, some of the worst starvation, some of the uh, worst poverty, and so on, are on Native American reservations. Mm-hmm. Just as uh, some of the others are in uh, ghettos where African Americans don't have a chance to get the education and the jobs that they should be given. But Native Americans finally, at some point in the 1880s, uh, they be- the government began to recognize them and grant them certain rights and provide certain services and certain monies for their development. But that meant a tightening up of the rules about who would get, who would get the money. And they had to fight, they would have to fight for it. They had to submit lists and claim that these were their members and they needed such and such money. And the federal government was very stingy. Matter of fact, there's millions of dollars the federal government collected in selling Native American lands and has yet to turn it over to the Native American nations. Wow, okay. Uh, hello, well, hello. Oh, okay. This, this is going to be our last caller. Are you actually online or are we getting a, an email? No, uh, I'm actually online. Can you hear me? Yes, we I can, can hear you. you. Go ahead. Go ahead with your question. Hi, uh, hi. Um, my name is Jay Canelfon, and um, and uh, I'm from Atlanta, and um, I'm and um, I'm part of Cherokee, uh, Cherokee Indian, and yeah, um, yeah. and I have uh, your book called uh, Black Indians, and uh, I would like to say it is a very very good book, and it's very educational, and I have been able to tell most of my other other Native American friends who who all live in like, you know, Pine Ridge in Arizona yes. who who are like, you know, like part like, you know, like Navajo, um and um and uh and uh, other tribes. So like, you know, like I would just uh, like to say I would just like to say uh, thank you and everything for this a real good book. Oh. Well yeah. thank you thank you very much for saying that. I it's 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 just a delight all the time to meet somebody who has read my book 
and and mm-hmm. finds it educational, as you pointed out, and useful. And it sounds like you not only used it yourself, but you got it out to friends. Right, right. That's absolutely very, very important. And I have to say, Mr. Katz, we have been absolutely... Is there someone else on the line? Okay. We have been absolutely... I I mean, we've been waiting for this interview. Um, it It has been such an honor... Uh, your book is extremely informative. I encourage everyone to go out and get it. You know, we often hear about African Americans saying that they are part uh, Native American, and it's true. Um, we need to hold up these many, many, many millions, tens of millions of people who were killed right here on their homeland, the indigenous yes. Native Americans. Um, is it, would you like to leave any last words, Mr. Katz? Yes. First of all, Ms. Shabazz, I would very much, very much like to thank you for being my interviewer tonight. I really appreciated your questions and uh, your <clears throat> the way you uh, got me to get out a lot of information in this short time. And I would just like to once again reiterate that the people we're talking about the African Americans and Native Americans were our first freedom fighters. Yeah. They formed the first Rainbow Coalition. They were the first to put forth ideas of Republican government and democracy and equal representation long before 55 white men gathered in Philadelphia and wrote the magnificent words that all men are created equal. And thank mm. you so much for having me on. Thank and you thank so Leslie Gist also. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're listening to William L. Katz. He's the author of Black Indians. And you can find more about him and his many critically acclaimed books at com. Thank you, Mr. Katz. And I'm looking forward to our next interview. I am too. Delight- okay. Delighted to talk with you. Okay. Well, thank you. You're listening to The Gist of Freedom online at www.blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz. Good night and goodbye. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.